G'day, thanks for downloading the show. Osha here. This is better than yesterday. Ayana is on the show today. My dear friend, the incredible, the powerful, the wise, the transcendent Ayana. So we'll get to that. But I'm here to tell you uh, something you probably know already. Podcasts, they're free to listen to, usually, unless you subscribe to one of those subscribey ones. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So I have two people that work really hard, three people actually, that work really hard to help me make this show. Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of my life, and um, Haley Ventspania, who looks after all the social stuff. And I've got to pay those people. So um, you might hear an ad. And if you do, thank you, because you're helping me help those people make this show. Because, yeah. Anyway, if you don't hear an ad, hurrah, you won. If you're listening overseas, you might hear an ad for some cool shit that I don't know about. I heard about those some like Swedish telco ads going on, but I'd love to hear it. Let's find out what's going to happen now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I think we have to establish the stakes and then not dwell on it. Like, yeah, yeah, no, it's really bad. We need to do everything we can to turn this around. If you need more examples, like, we can go through examples all day, right? Like, we can talk about sea level. We can talk about coral reefs. We can talk about temperatures that are too hot to go outside. But, like, it's bad. So what are you going to do about it? Fuck giving up. Absolutely not. Like, have you seen this magnificent planet? Have you met another human and ever been in love? Have you been on a walk in the woods? Like, who the hell are we to give up on all of this? Like, we do not have the right. And that is like this sense of obligation to each other is actually a big part of what drives me, even when I'm just like, oh, my God, it's such a long shot. It's such a shit show. Like, I don't know how this is going to work out. It's just like, eh? why not try and act as if? That is author, podcaster, marine biologist and climate communicator, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. And this is episode 365 of Better Than Yesterday. And thank you so much for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Welcome to the show. This is episode 365. One for every day of the year. Holy shit. We did it, Andy. Episode 365 of the show with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She is a powerful, powerful human. 
and I'm really excited about her being on the show today. If you've never listened to the show before, welcome, g'day. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. I guarantee that something you hear on this show today will make you make today. You'll go to bed tonight and go, you know, today was better than yesterday. That's it. That's what I'm here to do. Mondays, I speak with a guest. Uh, Fridays, I speak with you. I'm here twice a week, have been since 2013. My name's Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host and an author and a, a sandbag lifter and a kettlebell swinger and a baby put to better and um, oscillating fan n- placement ninja um, from Sydney, Australia. And uh, I'm very grateful I put the insulation in my office. I'll tell you that on today, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. And yeah, I'm, uh, I'm grateful you're here. If you want to get in touch with me, it's super easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. I'm also on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash Osher Ginsberg is where you can find me. I'm not far away from my hip operation. If you're just new to this show, uh, welcome. Um, you may have heard me go on for probably years about now that I need a hip replacement. In fact, I need two. And I'm getting one this week. I'm getting a new hip, which is shit scary because I keep waking up terrified about it. Yeah, I think that's okay. I'm getting half of my leg chopped out and some metal put in. I think it's okay to be worried about such a thing, but I wouldn't mind some sleep, to be honest. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we should be all right. Yeah, well, the podcast should continue. I do believe. I'll, 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 make, sure, I'll make sure the podcast continues. Don't worry. Between me and Andy and, and Rachel, we'll make sure that there's podcasts. We wouldn't leave you hanging. We wouldn't leave you hanging. There is something you can do for me today, if you wouldn't mind. If you could recommend this show to someone, that'd be really great, particularly in these times where you may not be able to like support me on Twitch financially. Like, If you want to support me, just go to twitch.tv slash Osher Ginsberg and subscribe, and that's the best way you can help me. But if you don't want to do that, or if you can't do that, um, the very best thing you can do for me, the best thing, to be honest, it's kind of better than you know giving me actual money, is to let someone know about this show in conversations that you're having or you know, in passing, if there's a particular episode that resonates with you, maybe the Adam Jacobs episode about employment, uh, the future of work, the future of learning, just tell someone, you know, your mum, your sister, your dad, your brother, the car park attendant, whatever. Every extra person really helps us here at the show. It helps us keep the lights on. I hope you're doing okay. I'm, I'm recording this on a day where I'm a thermometer on my desk says it's 33 degrees in my office. It's probably about 41 outside, 42. Now that's really fucking hot. All right. Hottest November ever recorded. Unprecedented heat wave. Extreme weather. And um, for me, if you know anything about my story, it's really fucking scary, man. It's hard, but it's okay. And, you know, as my brother always tells me, it's like every extreme weather event is another few people over the line of, oh, oh, we're probably going to have to do something about this. And unfortunately, we have to wait. It's fucked, but we have to wait. We have to wait for the heart attack, which is terrible, but that's where we are. You know, hopefully we'll turn into the, you know, the 50-year-old guy who who goes from being just a, a rum pig beer monster, you know, steak destroyer to a triathlete champion, you know, after losing 40 kilos and changing his life. Hopefully we become that when it comes to energy. But look, at this stage, I'd take anything, to be honest. But yeah, it's really hard being in these days uh, psychologically for me, but it's okay because it's not in my, if it's weird, I know it was like the bushfires last year. It's okay because it's not in my head now. It was all in my head, uh, the horror and the fear. I was inventing all of these moments and to actually have them and be living through them every day is, um, 
is not as bad, even though it's fucked that it's 41 degrees and our plants are burning in the garden beds. You know, literally, our Monstera is black. Our Monstera got burnt to a crisp yesterday. You know, fucking... Then this is just the start. You know, this is where we are. This is, as you'll hear with Ayana, you know, we're just at the beginning of all of this and we're really going to have to make some moves. But we've got to have these conversations because the more people, when you tell your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, your car park attendant, whoever, when you do have these conversations about climate and action, um, we have to have these conversations. And they're hard, they're tough, but we have to have them. And the sooner that we understand things like the sunk cost fallacy and... um, just be in acceptance and make a move, the, the quicker we can adapt and perhaps mitigate some of the things that, that lie in store for us. One of those things, speaking of mitigation, Sophia Hamblin Wang talked about. Now, before we get to Ayana, let me tell you about another podcast that talks about solutions, I guess. Episode 335, so 30 episodes before this one, Sophia Hamblin Wang. Because if conversations about possibility, and possibility that comes our way in the future, if they kind of tickle your fancy, you might like to scroll back to episode 335. Sophia Hamlin-Wang is the COO, Chief Operating Officer, of Mineral Carbon International. Basically, they pull CO2 out of industrial processes and lock it up in building materials. It's pretty interesting. They're working hard on decarbonizing the atmosphere and repurposing that CO2 and locking it away so it doesn't get back into the biosphere. That's really important. And it's a great conversation. And here's just a taste. When you look at a tree, I think a tree is a very elegant technology. I'm using quotation marks. That turns CO2 into building materials. But if you look at the full life cycle of a tree, at the end of the tree's life, if it burns or rots, it releases all of the CO2 that has ever been embedded in its structure back into the atmosphere. Our technology is mineral carbonation, which is actually the Earth's natural way that it stores CO2. So a good example is the White Cliffs of Dover in England. So there are magnesium silicates in the world or lots of like low-grade minerals in that category that over millions of years through weathering or through rain pushing CO2 into the rock sucks up CO2 naturally. And we've just taken that process from millions of years and turned it into a matter of hours in the lab and now in, in industrial size. That's Sophia Hamblin-Wang. Scroll on back to EP335 if you want to get a, get a handle on that and think about, you know, maybe where you might be investing your money, your super, things like that in uh, more modern technologies, technologies that are definitely ripe for the future, I guess. So let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist, a policy expert, author, and native of Brooklyn in uh, New York City. She is the founder and CEO of Ocean Collective, which is a, uh, a consulting firm for conservation solutions grounded in social justice. And she's also the founder of Urban Ocean Lab, which is a think tank for coastal cities. You think about the biggest cities in our world are all coastal cities, New York, Tokyo, Shanghai, Sydney, Los Angeles, you know, rising sea and more extreme weather is going to impact all that, all that stuff. And so... Ayana's on the case. Uh, she's often found, I guess, at the nexus. It's a good word. I love it. The nexus of science, policy, communication, and building community 
around climate solutions because that's really all we have is solutions. The time for everything else is past. We just have to look for solutions now. She is also one of the hosts of the extraordinary podcast, How to Save a Planet. You can find How to Save a Planet wherever you get to podcast. This one, for example. Ayana's latest book is called All We Can Save, and you can find out more about her latest book at allwecansave.earth. All We Can Save, one word, allwecansave.earth. Now, I've known Ayana for nearly 10 years now. I'm really grateful to have her in my life. She's one of the smartest, funnest, most vibrant, most beautiful people that I know. And she carries the burden of knowledge of what our future brings us every single day, yet she is still able to enjoy every single day. She truly is someone very, very special. And like I mentioned before, on a personal note, if you know anything about my story, you'll know that having in-depth conversations with a marine biologist about how utterly and irreversibly fucked so much of our planet is, it's an incredible confronting thing for me to do, for me to be with. Like you're listening to somebody who at, at one point, I couldn't even look at the word weather as in weather report on a newspaper or I'll turn the television off at the end of the news because I couldn't bear to see the weather map. You know, it's, it's, it's terrifying for me. It would send, it's a, you know, a totally irrational trigger, but that's exactly what it was. Uh, horrifying for me. So I'll hope that you can see that I'm walking the walk of my managing my anxiety, managing my intrusive thoughts, managing my obsessive compulsive disorder, walking the walk by learning and leaning into my fear leaning into my fear, taking my daily exposure therapy seriously, not shying away from things that frighten me. It's discomfort is the smallest word I can possibly bring to it. It's horrifyingly uncomfortable to do this. But in the same way that if you take a month off the gym, it sucks when you get back, you can't lift as much, you're puffed, you get a stitch. I just have to do it every day to make sure that I can be around it. All right. In the wise words of my favorite jogging baboon from the TV show Bojack Horseman, it gets easier, but you got to do it every day. That's the hard part, but it does get easier. So take a breath. Be grateful that someone like this is in the world because she truly is a, a radiant light of hope. Let's sit down with the delightful Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. There it is, I think. L is for the way at me. O is for the only one I see. B is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love <laughs> and give yeah, I to that song. you. <laughs> you got me. Oh, we used to sing that song in Amsterdam. That was a song that when we worked together in Amsterdam, that was a song that you would bust out in front of a room of people, and uh, <laughs> you were able to uh, you were able to get. All these strangers from the other parts of the planet, different backgrounds, different religions, different cultures, different everything, and they somehow all knew that song. 
I think because there's spelling in it, it really. You know, you just gotta change the vibe. You gotta change the vibe, <laughs> and I saw you do it a few. I saw you do it a few times. It's it was an a, extraordinary four-letter word. It works. It was ex- it was absolutely extraordinary. I'm so happy to speak to you today, Ayana. Are you? Oh, likewise. I'm guess we've been trying to do this for goodness. Let's be honest, years. Um, like years. <laughs> like yeah. years. But it's embarrassing. No, no, it's fine because understandably you're like, yeah, I do want to have that conversation, but I'll have that conversation when there's a thing that I can absolutely talk about because there was a bit of a nebulous moment in your journey for a moment there, which we'll get to. And that's totally fair enough. But I'm guessing, Ayana, that you are up in upstate New York right now? I am. I'm with my mom where she lives on this little, little farm, which is delightful because it's autumn and the leaves are falling and it's just like we had this crazy thunderstorm this afternoon and like the internet went out and the whole thing so we're back up and running now but yeah it's really nice to be to be able to sequester in such a lovely place I think a lot of us have gained a deeper appreciation for nature now that we're separated so much from each other and that's certainly been the case for me yeah, you were, if I'm not mistaken, you were living right in the in the city in New York when, when COVID hit, right? Yeah. Yeah. In Brooklyn, a block from the house I grew up in. What was that like? You know, with all the cool kids. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the, all I know about Brooklyn, I learned from films and Beastie Boys albums, you know, what was it like growing up there? It was the ghetto. I mean, my neighborhood, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, it was a super rough neighborhood and You know, in the 80s, it was sort of the peak of gang violence in Brooklyn and um, the crack epidemic and all these things sort of mashing up with poverty. And it was it was rough. But my parents did an incredible job of sort of insulating me from the worst of that. So I had like a happy childhood of like drawing on the sidewalk with chalk and jump roping and playing in our little backyard and digging up worms and tulip bulbs and making mud pies and all of that. I made igloos in our little front, like, concrete entryway. I would, like, shovel all the snow from, like, all my neighbors' front sidewalks. I would, like, beg them, can I have your snow, please? And they were like, is this a trick? Like, you're going to shovel my sidewalk. (laughs) And I would build igloos in my front yard. So I had, like, this incredible version of the Brooklyn experience. Wow. (laughs) But it's not exactly, you know, scuba diving with parrotfish in the Caribbean, is it? Slightly different, yeah. (laughs) So when I was five, my parents are strong believers that you need to have skills, like specific skills, like riding a bike, driving a car, learning to swim, like that these are things I needed to know. Learning to whistle, blow a bubble with bubble gum, right? There's like... To be a fully functioning human in society, like, these are the things that we think you should know. And so when I was five, they decided it was time for me to learn how to swim. And, you know, we were working class family. We didn't go on a lot of vacations. But this one vacation to Florida, to Key West, was the summer I learned to swim. It was the summer I fell in love with the ocean. It was the summer I saw a coral reef for the first time. It was like holding a sea urchin in the palm of my hand and being like, excuse me, like, can we talk about these weird underwater aliens that are crawling across my palm with tube feet? And that was it. I was just totally hooked. I started a shell collection and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to be a marine biologist. (laughs) I'm not taking any follow-up questions. (laughs) 
I love that line. I love that line so much. It's the new, considering we're living a life where like we're just exposed to press conferences every single day. People used to say mic drop, but now they just say, and I'm not taking any follow-up questions. I love it. I think it's it's such an (laughs) underscore. I had an experience with a coral reef when I was five as well, and I I was profoundly affected by it. Yeah? Uh, Yeah, on Lady Elliot Island, which is on the the southern end of the Whitsundays Mm. up in... um, uh, it was a very southern end of the Great Barrier Reef here in Australia. We were little kids. Um, but, yeah, I remember, like, I just couldn't believe it, you know? It was – this is like another mm-hmm. planet, man. I guess when you're mm-hmm. five, you don't know what a marine biologist is, but how did you figure out, like, you just – what, you just knew you wanted to work near the ocean, with the ocean? Did you start asking questions, I like, what's that job? I just sort of, like – I remember being in the aquarium with my mom and looking up at her and being like, can this be my job, essentially? Like, what is this? Because, you know, when you're five, you know about, like, you could be a fireman or a teacher or mm. a lawyer or a doctor. And I was like, this. Is there a job for this? <laughs> yeah. And I guess so from there, you have these these really interesting things that we as humans do. You know, we have this little decision that's been made in the back of our head and all the micro decisions that come along the way just sort of nudge us in that direction. From... Brooklyn, you ended up in Harvard, which from Australia even I know is- Happens to the best of us. It's a big fucking deal. (laughs) (laughs) How was that experience? How was like, I can only speak for myself. For me, even if I was super clever, I just wouldn't expect that I would be able to, you know? So, oh, well, why? People like, I don't apply to that because I can't do that. Uh, even yeah. now, I'd be like, I can't apply to Harvard. I don't know how to be in Harvard. Like, how did you even give yourself permission? How did the permission show up to even apply to get into Harvard? Mm. So there's like a not not that exciting answer to that question, which is I think just a year or two before I applied to college, something called the Common Application had been created where you basically could apply to a long list of colleges that all accepted the same application, like same essay, same, you know, address and, you know, list your extracurriculars. And so you basically just checked off which colleges you wanted to apply to. And I, like, didn't have time really because I was doing all of these extracurricular activities. I was a modern dancer. I was a jazz singer. I was like nominally on the basketball team, but like not really very committed or good at it. And so, you know, I didn't go on a tour and visit all these schools and see which one felt right. I just applied to like 12 or 13 schools without visiting, just like these seem fine. I don't know. They sent me brochures like this looks like a fine place. And Harvard was on the common applications, which is like, well, I could check one more box. It was 35 bucks for each school you applied to, which was way cheaper than going to fly around the country and visit them all. So my parents sort of indulged me in just like checking a bunch of boxes. And my college counselor in my high school was like, you're not getting into an Ivy League school. And I was like, whatever, I'm just checking this box anyway. It's fine. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't like this story of like, yeah, There's no I got montage. a great pep talk yeah. and someone was like, you can do it. Yeah. And there was like a running up the stairs moment yeah. and like none yeah. of that happened. Five minutes before the deadline, sliding a paper across the table. Well, there is actually a part about that, which is one of the schools that I was choosing between, right? Like I got into Harvard, but I wasn't instantly like, this is the place for me because I had, I did visit after I was accepted and I was like, I don't know about this stuff. You know, like, I don't know if this is the place for me. And I was obsessed with 
the Rocky Mountains and backpacking. And I had gotten into Colorado College <sighs> and was visiting there and was like, maybe I want to go here and like spend all my time in the mountains and become a skier. And they had a great modern dance program. But it was a bunch of like white kids with dreads and Birkenstocks and like a bunch of binge drinking soccer players. And I was just like... If these are my choices, like Harvard is much more my chance. <laughs> Just a bunch of like nerds. I know how to do that, right? Yeah. And it, you know, I'm super close with my mom and and being just a few hours from home. You know, because we didn't have money for me to just like keep flying back and forth to Colorado. Like knowing that I could, you know, hop on a bus and come home for the weekend was was a big deal. Yeah. So I actually submitted my application like the last day from Colorado, and my mom faxed the, you know acceptance form to the wrong number at Harvard, like didn't get it. And it was like a whole thing, but, but it worked out just fine. Okay, but I well, didn't have like perfect grades. I was sort of a B plus slash A minus student. And like, there's one semester my junior year where I got straight A's, but like it only happened once because I was just interested in a bunch of other stuff besides like memorizing things for tests. Right. Like, yeah. and that's why my, the teachers at my school weren't like pushing me towards the Ivy League. They were just like, she's, you know, smart enough and like she's got a lot of stuff going on. But nobody was like, she's the genius with the perfect <laughs> SAT scores like that. Right. Wasn't me, but I was like, let me give it a shot. I was I was fasc- I was fascinated into that to how that sort of thing happens. On the other side of Harvard, you you ended up with a job at the EPA and that's the Environmental Protection Agency, which was fantastically founded not long after humans first looked back from space at the planet and went, oh, all mm. oh, right, there are no lines down there. All right, it's all just one body of water and one big bubble of air. Oh, okay, uh, which is kind of fascinating that they had to wait until they had this wide angle view to create the EPA. Now, we have something similar in Australia, but I'm wondering if you could kind of paint a picture of what it's like inside those places because these are ultimately agencies that we as voters mm-hmm. in a democracy trust, have our best interests at heart and trust like, well, you yeah. know, there's an environmental impact statement behind that development and they, they would have gone through a lot of red tape because I know I had to go through a lot of red tape to put a back deck on my house. So clearly it's going to be just fine and whatever creatures live in that little gully and those frogs will be ace. All right, beauty, I trust in the system. <laughs> What's it actually like on the inside? I love this question, especially because, well, let me take a step back. So this What you described of seeing the Earth from space, like the full planet, this is called the overview effect, right? Mm. To see like that there are limits, that things are fragile, that we are just on a rock that's hurtling through space. I want to cry when I think, honestly, I want to cry when I think about it because it's just. It's so overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. That happened. But at, at that same time, you had Rachel Carson publishing Silent Spring and talking about how pesticides were killing birds and we just wouldn't have bird song in the spring anymore if we kept spraying DDT everywhere and how it was leading to cancers and people and all of these disruptions to ecosystems and insects and biodiversity. And you had the first Earth Day in 1970 with millions of Americans in the street demanding that their politicians do something to protect the environment because you had rivers in the U.S. that were literally on fire because they were so polluted and all sorts of problems because 
there weren't really enough regulations. So the EPA was born out of all of those things um, in 1970 under Richard Nixon, a Republican president who, you know, signed the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, created, you know, the EPA and NOAA because the issues of climate and the environment have really only become politically polarized in the U.S. in the last dozen or so years. You had John McCain running for president as a Republican in 2008 on a climate platform. So when I ended up at the EPA, it was 2002. I was just out of college. I was working in the policy office. George W. Bush was president. Christy Todd Whitman was the head of the EPA. And I was not a political appointee. I'm a Democrat. Well, I mean, nominally, I guess. If you only have two choices, that would be my choice. But, you know, we yes. need more choices in America. Yeah. Working Families Party, Progressive Party. So it was actually like the sign of things to come, looking back on it now, because this was the era where the Bush administration was putting forward these initiatives called like Clear Skies, and healthy forests. And it was completely Orwellian names, right? It was the complete opposite. They were cutting down forests, they were polluting the air and just like naming them these lovely things. And so that's when I was at the EPA. And um, I was so young. I mean, I was 21 years old and I was I was the youngest person by, I don't know, 15 to 20 years on the policy team, which was a pretty small team. And if I were there now, I would find ways to, like, work within the system to change things. But at the time, I was like, what am I even doing here? And no one's listening to me. But I also, like, don't particularly have anything to say. But the reason I wanted to be there was because I care about science. And I was really interested to know what is the role that science plays in policymaking. I didn't have any sort of desire to spend a career working in government, but I really wanted to know, like, from the outside, how could I be helpful in the future? Like, where can scientists plug in to this work, right? Who do you send your papers to? How do you, you know, make sure that that's considered in, as you described, like, an environmental impact statement, right? Because you, I mean, I, and I learned a lot about that, right? These, these very well-meaning sort of government bureaucrats, they don't have time to read every paper that comes out. Like, we need to have this be an interactive process where you're collaborating, you're, you're contributing to government decision-making. And so I'm really glad I was there, but it was also just really frustrating and also kind of boring and <laughs> cubicles are not my vibe. No. And I ended up like, this is embarrassing to it, but I ended up like taking super long lunch breaks as I lived nearby and like my boyfriend would cook these incredible lunches. I'd have like long lunch breaks. I even went to like one or two matinee movies. Okay. Like I just really, by the end, I was like, there's no, I'm not doing anything useful. I'm just sitting at the desk yeah. being miserable under fl fluorescent lights. So get me yeah. out of here. Your heart's not in it. Yeah, I, as a mate of mine, that was he was a lawyer. And um, I, how's your day today, man? He goes, I found that if I leave the jacket on the back of my chair and turn my screensaver off, I can go to a movie and come back and no one notices I'm gone. <laughs> Which is yeah. what he was doing. I can vouch for that. I'm, yeah, well, I'm guessing when you get to that point, it means your heart's not in the gig and you may want to move on. Do you think that these sorts of agencies, because ultimately we are, and, and you, know, you in America are doing it, we in Australia are doing it, we're voting governments in with the hope that they can create environmental change on our behalf. Do you think these kind of agencies have the teeth to do something like that? They absolutely do. It just depends who's in charge, right? Like under George W. Bush, they had the authority to do it, but were they doing it? 
no. But at the same time, there's like, this is the other main thing I learned there that like the elected officials, the administration, they pick like a few big things that are going to be their issue, their policy. And that's what they do. So right in that age, it was clear skies, healthy forests. But a lot of the other work often mandated by congressional acts, we're just sort of chugging along under the radar. So there's a lot of good that's happening no matter who's in charge. But this administration, the Trump administration, has been absolutely the worst our country has ever seen on the environment. They've tried to roll back a hundred environmental regulations over the course of the last four years. Like, we don't care how much you emit. Like, we don't care how much you dump. We don't even need to check you. We don't need you to put all these precautions into your oil and gas drilling. And it's been absolutely abysmal for the climate and the environment and and human health. Yeah, yeah, long-term human health. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we, we actually uh, met like some sometimes around, I think it was around 20, early 2012. We, we met in Joshua Tree of all places. Oh, yeah. There was a friend's party in Joshua Tree because, uh, you know, we both have a kind of friends who go, it's my birthday. I'm going to go camping in You were living in, in LA. Tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we met. It was nearby. I was living in San Diego, so it was just like a drive. Oh, no. Did I fly out there from D.C. for a birthday party? I think I did. Yeah, I think you did. I really like Natalie. What can I say? <laughs> that's right. I remember asking, what do you do? And you said, oh, I help people who live in small island nations, figure out how to fish so that they will have fish to feed their children. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And I think about you, because I spent a lot, my wife's Fijian, Audrey's Fijian. Have you ever been to Fiji? No, not yet. Oh, Ayana, you simply must. Because I think about you a lot when I'm out there, because when I, I, I work out there as well. There's a TV mm. show we shoot that's out there. And I work out there a lot. And uh, I'll sit there all day and I watch the villagers go out from the village next door. And go on, you know, work the reef and, and their relationship to the reef and what their life is because their food source is right there and their ability to care for it is right there. And I think about that work that you did a lot. And people may not realize, mm-hmm. you know, that that actually is a thing and that overfishing is a thing if you live in a village just as much as it is if you're, if you're coming around with a super trawler that has 20 kilometer long nets. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the problem was and, and the work that you did around that and what the ongoing effect of that work has been? So the moment between sort of quitting my job at the EPA and 
meeting you. Let's use the proper milestones for my life story here. Yes, of course. What happened in between there was I did a PhD in marine biology. I moved to San Diego. I enrolled in this program at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I spent a lot of that time, it you know took five years to get the degree, spent a lot of that time in the Caribbean, in, in Curacao and Bonaire in particular, trying to figure out like, what does sustainable fishing actually look like? What does that mean? And that started out with like, okay, so how do we make fishing gear more selective? How do we make sure that it's catching only what fishermen want to catch so that they're wasting less or less bycatch is the term. And so I was like redesigning fishing gear. I was redesigning fish traps so they had a slot in the corner that the skinny fish and the baby fish would get out. These sort of like Nemo-shaped species would be able to, you know, swim out and the rest would stay in the groupers and snappers that the fishermen actually wanted. And you could decrease this bycatch by like 80% without impacting fishermen's incomes. That was my first science project in grad school. And I was just like, this is super cool. Like low tech, super effective, collaborated with fishermen, worked with the local fisheries officers for the government who were considering new policies and they needed proof of what was going to work or not. And so I was able to test a bunch of different fish trap designs and turn over my data to them. And they used that to change their policy. This fish trap that I designed is now required by law in a bunch of different Caribbean islands. So, of course, if that's like your first science project, you're like, what are we doing next? Like, (laughs) this is awesome because I've never just wanted to do research that wasn't directly applicable to better management, to conservation, right? Like, by the time I was in grad school in 2005, Like the ocean was in real, real trouble. I didn't feel like I could just like study octopus reproductive biology or whatever cool thing I might have done otherwise. I was like, I need to figure out how to help. And being the daughter of a Jamaican immigrant, I was really drawn to the Caribbean hearing my dad's stories of how much those ocean ecosystems had fallen apart during his lifetime. Mm. And so after that first project working on, on fishing gear, I realized that, like, honestly, the fish are doing everything right, you know? They're, like, swimming around, trying to find some food, try to not become food, try to make some babies, you know, get on with their day. It's humans that are the problem. And so I stopped scuba diving, and I started interviewing fishermen and scuba divers and tourism officials and government officials to really understand, like, What were the problems that people were seeing? Fishermen in particular, like what were they noticing? Like they know more about the ocean than I ever will. They've spent their entire lives on and under the water. And so I spent months driving around with a cooler full of beer and snacks and folding chairs in my trunk and just listened. I like interrupted Domino's games. I just like wrote down everything they told me about what changes they were seeing, you know, and if they could write the rules to manage the ocean, to manage fishing, what would they be? And so it was out of that, out of those like 400 hour plus long interviews with fishermen and professional scuba divers that changed the way I understood the ocean, 
change the way I understood what sustainable management would look like and how holistic it needed to be and how intertwined all of these challenges were with tourism and overfishing and poverty and policy and culture. And so to your specific question, the problem is you can overfish even when there aren't that many people on an island. All you have to do is eat the fish faster than they can make babies. And on a coral reef, which is actually often, you know, Australia is the exception to this, but coral reefs are usually pretty small ecosystems that just are, you know, sort of a narrow strip around the island where you have all of this biodiversity and it's incredible. We can absolutely catch groupers faster than they can make babies, right? We can absolutely catch snappers and octopus and whatever faster than they can reproduce. And that's by definition not sustainable. And so figuring out sort of like how much the ocean can bear in terms of what we're taking out, is a huge area of focus for for a lot of ocean scientists. Yeah, this is this is exactly the sort of stuff that I you know because you, you you come to my mind a lot because I've only really thought about that stuff since I since I met you because I you know I'd never lived on a on a small island at that point, but I have now and uh, you know I really get it. I really I think about it a lot. I see the way the the guys in the village next door teach the kids and they go out there with a small net. And, you know, they only, I watch them come in, they literally only carry three fish with them or four fish with them. That's it. You know, I watch them throw stuff back. They don't take, ever, they take more than they need from the village next door. And um, it's pretty special, but I'm sure there's, there's lessons from there. There's lessons from that tiny little version of using a resource to sustain yourself, but not overusing a resource to the point where it can't replenish itself to the point where then you now no longer have that resource. There's a version of managing that that can be blown out to a kind of real macro level, I'm sure, which is, you know, along the lines of the work that you do now around around climate. Yeah. Because there is no talk about climate without talk about the ocean because, and I think that's the, it's, it's often overlooked, you know, we talk a lot about the air because the air is important. We put it into our lungs 30 times a minute. We think a lot about air, but we don't really think about ocean and the relationship of ocean to weather, the relationship of ocean to carbon sequestration, the relationship of ocean to food supply, and ultimately the relationship of ocean to the fragile cities that we have built for some reason uh, less than 30 centimetres away from the highest of tides. Because <laughs> yeah, I guess it was a cool idea at the time. Humans. Humans, man. Hubris yeah. will totally get us in the end, won't it? I remember in Amsterdam when we were at, uh, working at Amsterdam, I remember having a conversation with you about this. And I was, bear in mind, Ayana, you may not realize this, um, I was actually quite sick uh, when we first met again in Amsterdam. I was quite ill. I was going through some very, very difficult episodes of mental health, mental illness, actually. And it was all around climate. I remember we would go on these bike rides to get to and from where we were going. And I would just like, my favorite thing to do is stand up while riding a bike. To me, it's like the ultimate joy is feel that feeling. And I would just like yell pep talks at you while we were pedaling. And I was like, you got this. We're going to do the things. It's going to be fine, which is like not really helpful. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm grateful that you tried. I'm grateful that you tried. But I was, I was, I was actually so ill. I needed, I needed drugs before things like that could even touch the sides. I think that's the thing that people may, may not realize. There's a point where pep talks are great, and there's a point then where yeah. your brain actually just stops accepting that kind of information and it no longer works. It's like, you know, COVID, they say you lose yeah. a sense of taste. Like, you can eat all the yummy food in the world, but you won't taste it. All right. So 
my brain was at a point where mm. I could be around someone like you who is an absolute change maker. And I, and I see the work you were doing, particularly on, was it the Green New Deal, the Blue New Deal? You were working on a big, big policy paper for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, the Blue New Deal. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I know someone who is in a room with a massive candidate in American politics working on actual policy around it. I actually know someone personally who was working very, very hard on trying to fix this. And, um, if I'm having a good day, that makes me go, oh, good. But if I'm having a bad day, it's like, well, whatever, that doesn't matter. And that's really, you know, that's really hard some days. But so sometimes, mm-hmm. sorry to talk, talk about meds for a sec, but sometimes mm-hmm. meds can help that signal make a difference. Where was it? Because that for me, that was ultimately, Iana, that was me going through a phase of like, the, it took me about two years to get through just accepting the incredibly difficult situation that we are in understanding mm-hmm. no matter what, even if tomorrow I honestly went, oh, I found cold fusion. It's great. Free energy for everyone. And we went completely carbon neutral tomorrow that we would still have adverse weather conditions and environmental effects for decades. Mm-hmm. And just understanding the process that we are just at the very start of, that we absolutely cannot stop no matter what we do. And being with the grief of the loss that is to come. I think when I think about it, you know, that's mm. kind of what I was dealing with. My brain wasn't really able to hack it. What was it like for you when you first started realizing what sort of situation we were in? I didn't know that was part of what was affecting you. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, oh, that's, yeah. I didn't talk about it. I was too scared to talk about it. Totally understand. Yeah. I think, you know, as a scientist, I, I know a lot about what the future could hold, right? I read the papers, I see the scientific pro- projections on on temperature, on sea level, on extreme weather events, on migration, on coral reefs are probably not going to make it at the rate we're going, which is the most fucking heartbreaking thing I can imagine. I mean, I gave a TED Talk, which was basically like, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I watched it, you know, after they like did all the editing and it was about to go on the internet, I was like, I got to watch it once. And I completely broke down. Just like I was in a car pulled over on the side of Route 1 in California, like looking at the beautiful ocean, like off a cliff and just weeping because I realized that was my goodbye to coral reefs. Like some part of me had just given up on them. Because, you know, the science says that with two degrees Celsius of warming, like, that they cannot survive, not in the in the way that we know them now. And that definitely gets to me. Like, it is, it's horrifying that this has been done to the planet. And I think the way that I get on with my life and work, knowing everything that I know in sort of like the level of detail that I know it is to say every one of those graphs, every one of those scientific projections has a range of possible futures, right? No one knows exactly what the future is going to look like. And every day I wake up and I'm like, I want the best possible future. Like, how can I contribute to the best possible outcome? Because whether it's one and a half degrees or two or three or four, each of those is like a 
radically different future. And we still get to decide that. I mean, unfortunately, the the decision up until this point has been made for us by greedy, horrible fossil fuel companies who, you know, put their profit over literally everything else, humanity and every other species, and have, you know, pulled the wool over our eyes and created this whole concept of a carbon footprint as a fucking marketing campaign to make us as individuals worry and stress out about whether or not we turn off the lights when we leave the room, when what we really need is like 100% renewable energy and, and public transit and regenerative agriculture and more efficient buildings and whatever. And that makes me really mad. But knowing everything I know means that I can be even more strategic about how I contribute to solutions. And a lot of my work, I mean, all of my work is forward looking. It's like, what does it look like if we get it right? Like that's what if we get it right is like the working title for the book that I'm supposed to be writing because we don't have enough of those stories, right? We have the apocalypse. We have the uninhabitable earth. We have the day after tomorrow, but we don't have anything we're running toward. Like, why are we going to put in all this work if we can't even see what the good or better version of the future looks like? So we're kind of like all sauntering away from the apocalypse. Like, we know that's bad, but like, we don't know what the good version is. And so that's kind of how I've tried to focus my energy is, is in that direction. And that's got to be, I started talking about this stuff quite publicly and I started, you know, becoming more active in speaking about it, Ayana, because as I discussed, you know, earlier, like I found as painful as it was, I mean, I was, I lost sleep talk about talking to you today because it's still, it's terrifying for me to talk about this stuff still. It should be terrifying for all of us yes. to be clear. Yes. Like you feeling that so intensely, like everyone should be feeling something, right? <laughs> like yeah. if you can hear this yeah. and not feel anything, then like you have a whole different set of like things that you should probably be figuring out. Like yeah. then you're numb and you've given yeah. up on the future. Well, well, I think that's that's the thing. We have so many messages about apocalypse, doom, flooded cities, all of the Middle East walking its way to Europe, you know, because it's now 55 degrees in the wintertime and people cannot live there, you know, no water, all that. So we know all that. And it's so overwhelming that we can just go, uh, and we just get lapsed into this kind of, yeah. into this numb inaction. But I do know that the only antidote to feeling that kind of pain is in talking about it. It is in action. And I found like if I'm messaging the, you know, and when I'm talking about it, if I'm messaging, you know, the, the doom stuff, it tends to people just become stagnant. They're like, well, it's too big. I, I can't, but that, it has to be talking yeah. about possibility. It has to be talking I about. I think we have to establish the stakes, right? And then not dwell on it. Like, yeah, yeah, no, it's really bad. We need to do everything we can to turn this around. If you need more examples, like, we can go through examples all day, right? Like, we can talk about sea level. We can talk about coral reefs. We can talk about, you know, temperatures that are too hot to go outside. But, like, it's bad. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. And yeah. which is why I love that. Then that's that really struck me about the title of the book, All We Can Save. It's a very, uh, I know you must have thought a lot mm -hmm. about that. It's a, it's a collection of essays made by women climate leaders. The, it has to be about possibility. It has to be about, as you mentioned, what if we get it right? It has to be about, do you know there's a better version of what we do right now? 
and it's available to us. We don't have to wait for anything to get invented. Like we can just use the stuff we already know how to do. I just got an electric car. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never have to go to a gas station again. I could charge my car from my house. Like what? Why were, why were we all fighting this for so long? Like what's with the fear of change, humans? Like let's move forward. You know, it's the same with agriculture. Like if we transition from this like horrible toxic industrial agriculture to regenerative practices, like we get to eat better food and like have more birds and insects and like butterflies and like all this great stuff, right? Like who wouldn't want that? So there's all of these upsides that I think we sort of gloss over if we're not thinking, if we're not open to possibility. And so the title of this book is All We Can Save, but Actually, the last essay in the book I, I co-authored with my co-editor for the anthology, Catherine Wilkinson, and each paragraph explains one of the words, all we can save. And I think every day it's a different one of those four words that strikes me. Lately, it's been the we, the need to remember that we're not in this alone, that we need to find a team, you need to join a group, um, you know, find your role. And then can, right? Like that's where there's so much possibility. And there's a line I will not misquote myself, so I will open to it. Um, it goes, can speaks to sheer determination. This shit ain't over yet. Possibility still exists as documented in data-driven analysis of climate solutions and temperature trajectories, as imprinted in the persistence of life despite all odds. We are a miracle. Our task and our opportunity is to face a seemingly impossible challenge and act in service of what is possible. So what can I do? It's an increasingly prevalent question, which is a very good thing, but the answers offered are often trite, consumerist, and incomplete. And often the question should be, what can we do? How can we depart this perilous path? These are questions to live into every day for the rest of our lives. We can answer them and answer them again and again by considering what good work is unfolding around us what invitations we may already have received, and what gifts we might have to offer or offer more deeply. From personal acts to professional prowess to political participation, our layers of agency are more profound than we may realize. Our choices and voices, our networks, dollars and votes, our skills and ingenuity, these are all openings for can. Enough of what we cannot achieve can is the drumbeat of those who refuse to give in to destruction, who rise again and again with life force. And it was just like <laughs> tearing up. It's like so incredible to get to write something like that. That's just like, fuck giving up. Absolutely not. Like, have you seen this magnificent planet? Have you met another human and ever been in love? Have you been on a walk in the woods? Like, who the hell are we to give up on all of this? Like, we do not have the right. And that is like this sense of obligation to each other is actually a big part of what drives me, even when I'm just like, oh, my God, it's such a long shot. It's such a shit show. Like, I don't know how this is going to work out. It's just like, eh? why not? Why not try and act as if? Why not try and act as if? That has to be it. And like, honestly, Ayana, it's, it's what you're talking about is, you know, a, a large 
I'm not going to lie. There was a part of me that was like, it's okay. I'll be dead one day. And I'll be dead. I'll be dead before it gets that That's bad. That's super common. Yeah. I'll be dead before it gets that bad. There was a point, mind you, where I was that sick, where it was like, I could probably make that day pretty soon if I wanted. Uh, but I didn't. It got that bad. Yeah. It got that bad. Um, but I got a lot better. But then I met Audrey and I met Georgia, who was 10 at the time. And I'm like, fuck. All right. There's probably another 80 years on that day that I thought about. And now we've got Wolfie. It's like, yeah. fuck, there's another 100 years on that day I thought about. Because there's, you know, he'll live till he's 90. Like, okay. All right. Got to do it. And yeah, it's such a long shot. It literally is Trinity in the first scene of The Matrix diving off a building trying to get through that itty bitty window on the other side of the alley. Like <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of where we are. Like, <sighs> And I think the problem is like a lot of times we're, we're expected to be hopeful or we're relying on hope or we're expecting that to come from something external. And honestly, I've just like, I hate that word. I think that word is, for me, like very counterproductive. It's like we're supposed to wait until we feel hopeful to do something. And actually, like doing the things is what makes us feel better, like if we can figure out how to get to that point of action. And so the subtitle for the book is Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. That is the way forward. To me, that is the trifecta of things. Like we have to face the truth, like brutal though it may be, and we have to move. It takes a lot of courage to move forward despite knowing what we know. But there are also so many solutions. Like we have over a hundred major solutions to climate change. We have renewable energy. We have like regenerative ocean farming. We have education. We have, we can change the grid. We can change the way that we like store energy. We have solar, we have wind, we have all of these things. We just need to make them all happen way, way faster and get all these jerks who are blocking the transformation out of the way, whether that's like corporate executives who are not thinking in our collective best interest or politicians who they've purchased. <laughs> I don't mince words there, but you're right. Australia, we have this this big issue in our country. And like, there's always the argument in Australia is like, oh, we're only a tiny percentage of the world's carbon emissions. But people often don't count the amount of coal that we export. We export something like... Oh, I'm, God. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to get the number wrong, but we export anywhere between 10 and 20% of the world's carbon emissions. They get dug out of Australia, put on ships, taken to other countries to get burned. All right. So we really, we've got a stake in this. We've got a massive stake in this, but the mm -hmm. wealth such mining has brought to our country is so all pervasive through the systems of government and power and mm -hmm. and the life that we have gotten used to. As you mentioned, it's like these decisions are going to get made made for us ultimately. And and I'm interested to, you know, get your thoughts on this. The it, it feels to me that the moral argument for climate change, unfortunately, the moral sorry, the moral argument for uh, speaking of which, wasn't it the Bush administration that called it climate change? It used to be global warming. It used to be global warming and there was a big rebranding. Yeah, yeah, because global warming sounded serious and like change. Like, oh, it's just maybe not so bad. It could sort of like go either way. Yeah. Maybe it's just like fluctuating. Yeah, this was a whole like marketing thing. Yeah. So it was focus grouped. Right. It's disgusting. Uh, shit, really? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. For sure. There's a movie about Dick Cheney 
what is it called? Vice? I think it's called Vice. Yeah. Which, like, that's the last scene in the movie is, like, the focus group where they rename global warming, climate change. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was in the movie theater. I was like, what? <laughs> my heart just... <laughs> you fuckers. Yeah. So, oh, my God, yeah. that hurts so bad. So the moral argument for uh, action on global warming was kind of lost as soon as it was brought up in the 70s, you know, Carl Sagan, I think, and Cosmos did a big, big thing on it. And people were like, eh, what are you going to do? Yet the financial argument, we're now at a point where the financial argument is the one that's winning. It's now cheaper to deploy renewable. It's mm-hmm. now cheaper to, to do these things. And it sucks, but it feels we have to wait for it to be financially viable that the system that has created this situation will only respond to a financial trigger and we kind of have to wait for that. So talk to me about, if you wouldn't mind, like what's the financial trigger around something like looking after the ocean? What's the financial trigger around something like regenerative Mm. farming? I don't think we have to wait. I just think we have to exert our collective power. We can vote horrible people out of office who are not protecting us and our well-being and the environment that we depend on. We can get laws changed. We just have to speak up collectively because there is, in fact, strength in numbers. Politicians want to be reelected, but we have to inform ourselves because, like, of all these crazy marketing campaigns and lobbying efforts and whatever, like, it's, and all the, like, really horrible misinformation that's being spread around on social media and, like, all this stuff. Like, it's both harder and more important than ever to be a fully informed citizen. And I think what we're seeing in the last two years in the U.S. is a youth-led climate movement, and this has obviously happened around the world, a youth-led climate movement that has, like, no patience for grown-ups talking about cost-benefit analysis. They're like, you're saying my future is a, you're going to decide that based on some back-of-the-envelope calculations? Like, no, I deserve a future. And you need to get it together so that I can have one, right? I mean, there's this moral clarity. Like, it is wrong to deprive my generation and every future generation of a livable planet. Like, that's just wrong. And I think part of the sort of like financial gymnastics has been to not look enough at the costs of inaction, right? We talk about how expensive it would be to change from coal to renewables. We don't talk about it literally costs us everything, if we don't make that transition. And so the whole conversation is rigged if we're talking only about the costs of changing and not about the fact that, like, that's the only way that we'll essentially have any sort of survival of a life that looks something like today. So I think when people come at you with these financial arguments, just make sure they're looking at both sides of the equation, because if you look at the full picture, it's incredibly clear that doing things, acting on climate, reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases has way more benefits than costs. Because like, what is the value of life on Earth, right? What number are you putting on that side of the equation, guys? So I think we just need to be a little bit careful of, of that math, especially we've seen in the last just few months dealing with coronavirus and suddenly governments have trillions, billions of dollars to devote towards whatever is needed. But when it comes to climate change, which is just as big of a threat on a different timescale, like suddenly no one has any money, like 
But clearly the money was always there, right? It just, you didn't want to spend it on this. So that's what I would say about that. I mean, I know you were asking about the, the role of the ocean, that how that conversation goes for the ocean in particular, but I think it's probably a, a similar yeah. discussion no, no matter and which sort of element of the ecosystem we're talking about. I think about that a lot around COVID-19, you know, I think that, okay, so hang on. So a few years ago, you were shown a line on a graph and you were shown a curve and you were shown a line that said this particular system will collapse if this line goes above that line. Yet in February, you were shown a line that said, here's how many infections are happening per day. Here's the hospital capacity. Here's where the hospital system's ability to cope collapses. And then suddenly it's fucking alarm bells and action stations and economic stimulus up the wazoo. It's like, don't tell me you guys don't know how to read a fucking graph because you've shown your hand. <laughs> You know how to read Yeah, we're on to you. Yeah. Don't yeah. pretend like you didn't understand. But I think you're absolutely right, Iana. They just didn't want to. But it can seem so futile yeah. in Australia particularly. And I know that in America you have oil lobbyists and, and fossil fuel lobbyists and things like that that really have the mic. They have... They, they are holding the marionette strings. There's no question about it. And similarly in Australia, we are absolutely beholden to this kind of overarching influence of the mining in our country and um, you know, minerals extraction. And it can seem overwhelming for just an average punter like me, you know. I mean, I'm not an average punter. I've got a TV job and, you know, whatever. But the average punter, they're like, well, I can't fucking do anything, so I might as well sit here and scroll through TikTok for three more hours. What can we possibly do? when faced with this adversity. There's some really good climate TikToks, by the way. There's some like really <laughs> sassy, funny climate action TikToks where people are like pointing at words that are like, are you fucking kidding me? Of course we should do something about this. Like there's just great. But there are some things that are a waste of time on there for sure. No, I like it. Yeah. What can we do? What can we do when we're faced with this? It's me against the system. What can we do? Join a team. So one of the things we did to answer that question well, there's 41 essays in this book, and we think of each of them as a door, as a welcoming for how you can participate and contribute, right? This is not a book written by scientists. There's a few scientists in here. There's also farmers and artists and architects and journalists and teachers and lawyers and policy experts and people who organize protests and other forms of activism, right? It's going to take all of that. And so by showing that this is not just solar panels and electric cars, like there is so much more to this work, the goal is to say like, okay, well, well, where do you fit into that? Because no one can solve climate change by themselves. No one, like literally no one. Like if Greta Thunberg sat outside the Swedish parliament alone for 20 years, it wouldn't matter. It only matters because people joined her, right? And so we we all need to join the things that are working. We need to follow where wise leadership emerges. And so at the end of the book, we have two appendices. And one is a list of climate solutions that comes from Project Drawdown. If anyone wants to see those in detail, just go to drawdown.org and you can see everything from electricity and efficiency and, you know, food and agriculture and industry and transportation and buildings and ecosystems that are absorbing carbon and, and the role of equity as a, as a climate solution. And then we have an appendix that's the list of all of the organizations that are referenced in the book that people might want to volunteer with or donate to or learn more about because, yes, we all need to figure out where to plug in. And there's a lot of organizations that have 
a local chapter, whether that's like Surfrider or the Sierra Club or, you know, the Nature Conservancy or like whatever. Sorry, I don't know what the local ones are in Australia, but like join something. I oh, know there's, there's, and you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, join something. Join something. Get in action. Like bring your friends. Like do a thing together. Someone asked me in an interview yesterday because I'm I'm pretty busy, Ayana. I'm I, I guess when when we met again in in Amsterdam, I was well. Let's use the word unemployed. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, now I'm very not. And people ask me like, how are you? How do you have so much time to do everything? It's like it's real easy. Look at your screen time on a Sunday morning when your screen time on your phone pings at you and says, "This is how much time you spent on your phone." And have a look how many hours you spend in Facebook, Instagram you know, group chats, scrolling through TikTok, like it's probably around nine hours of your week. You could probably do something else with those nine hours. It's probably a lot. You could go on. Yeah. You Save on, the planet. You could go on. You got time. Don't worry. You got time for it. You'll, <laughs> you'll be all right. Yeah. But this, this thing that you've been talking about, Asher, about that, like the importance of talking about it. Mm. I so deeply believe in that because we have this fear that comes from silence and feeling alone and feeling like it's too big. This is something that like so many people are experiencing to varying degrees. And so ignoring it only makes that feeling worse or like not dealing with it. And so that's why I have a podcast now. I never like aspired to have a podcast, but it was this opportunity to highlight what's working because what we need to do is like repeat the things that are working and stop doing the stuff that's not working. It sounds so simple, but yet, like, who can tell five stories about climate solutions that are worth replicating? Yeah. You know, I think think a lot about this stuff, Ayana, you know, it's it's not like we don't already have the solutions to the human psychology that has got us into this point. I was talking about this the other day on a seminar, like, we have all of the treatments for addiction. We know exactly what to do around addiction to get people out of addiction. Just take alcohol or gambling or porn or whatever it is, replace it with fossil fuels, replace person with system, and it's there, all right? The steps are there. Trust me, I've taken them, and I'm 10 and a half years sober. You can do it. Similarly, we talked just about how important it is to talk about it, and I think about it. There was a time when I was a young man, all right, in my lifetime, you didn't talk about cancer. It was that frightening. It was that terrible. If someone you knew had mm-hmm. cancer, you didn't even speak about it. You would sit there at a dinner party with someone who was dying and not mention it. All right? Similarly, we have this experience as humans of like, this is the thing that was so confronting. We never talked about it. It was, in fact, it was so confronting. We pretended it didn't exist. It was so confronting. People who had the diagnosis kept fucking smoking because they were just too afraid. They just pretended it wasn't there. We have all the psychological tools that we've developed to deal with these kind of ways of humans reacting to really confronting things. We just need to transplant them and implement them in different ways. It's not like we have to reinvent anything. It's all there. The solutions are there. I often think that like, was a PhD in marine biology actually the most useful thing or should I have studied psychology, right? Because this (laughs) is about changing the way we see the world. It's like, it's the changing minds and hearts, right? It's about what motivates people and what drives people and how we make decisions. And one of the major failings of the climate movement has been to just assume that if we threw more facts at people, that that would be enough. That's terrifying. Right? Because you have a bunch of scientists yeah. trying to be in charge. And like, if I show you 10 more graphs about how doomed we are, like, you're like, 
uh, <laughs> okay, like put, take those away. I don't want those. Right. Like that's like we do, we need the stories. And so being able to now do some interviews myself and talk with, you know, the woman who led the Sierra clubs beyond coal campaign and which has gotten 230 coal fire power plants shut down in the United States Holy in the last shit. decade, right? Like, that's what we need to be talking about. Like, how did they do that? And like, how can we do more of that? And it's the same with like, how are towns transitioning from coal to offshore wind energy? Like, let's tell that story. Let's talk to the farmers in the Midwest who have switched to regenerative practices and ask them how they did it and ask them how they make the finances work and how they're spreading the word, right? Let's talk about how we got our government in the United States to start thinking about a Green New Deal. And we had the Democratic primary become a race to the top for who had the best climate policy. And Joe Biden's climate policy is now like the most progressive climate proposal of any presidential candidate in history. And it's not because Joe Biden is a climate champion. It's because people demanded it, right? Like for months and months and months, people just said like, this is a major voting issue for us. Like you better get it together because like we are not throwing our full might behind you unless you have a plan that actually is aggressive enough to meet what the science says is required. And so there are all of these examples of the ways in which we can change things dramatically and actually quite quickly. And those are the stories that we're telling on How to Save a Planet, my baby little podcast over at Spotify and Gimlet. And it's been such a blast because for someone who often is extremely worried about the future, it feels good to me, too, to be able to think about what it could look like if we get it right. Ayana, you are too fantastic. You are the best. No, you're the best. <laughs> I'm so grateful. I'm so glad we did this, Asher. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to have met you all those years ago on top of a rock in Joshua Tree. <laughs> I know. It was a good rock. It was a good rock. <laughs> and thanks for thanks for trying your best in Amsterdam. Thanks for trying to pick me up. You didn't know what was happening, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're the best. We all do what we can. That was Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter. She's Ayana Eliza, A-Y-A-N-A-E-L-I-Z-A, A-Y-A-N-A-E-L-I-Z-A, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Her new book is called All We Can Save, and the website to get uh, more info about the book is allwecansave.earth. And uh, she's out every week with her fantastic podcast, How to Save a Planet. Does what it says on the box, and this is a woman that knows what she's talking about. I'm incredibly grateful that someone who is working at the toppest of top ends of government policy on shaping what the future of uh, climate mitigation and adaptation can look like, I'm grateful to know her and I'm grateful that I was able to have this conversation that you could hear to know that somewhere there's some fucking adults in the room and somewhere there's some people who are really working very, very, very hard to find solutions. It's not all politicians holding coal in parliament. It's not all people going, no, gas is the way forward. There are actually people who go, okay, we got to change the way we think. Like there are people out there and she's one of them and there's many of them. And it's important that we profile these people more and make them well and truly heard and support them wherever we can. I think the next time we speak, I'll be in hospital. I've got to figure out uh, how I'm going to record it, but um, we'll have to see what happens there. There will definitely be a podcast on Friday. I'll either have it pre-recorded or you'll get to hear me out of my mind on painkillers, one of the two. Um, either way, there'll be a podcast on Friday. 
Uh, we'll see what happens. Until we speak next time, thanks for listening. Get behind Ayana. She really needs your support. Get in touch with me if you need anything. Send us your email at gmail.com. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.